The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. So we have some unfinished business from last time talking about the intermediate state, and by that we mean what happens to people after they die before the resurrection. And we had already covered in, uh, very briefly uh, what happens to believers after they die. Uh, remember what we said, that the body, um, the soul is separated from the body, and uh, so thus at that point the body goes to corruption, uh, decay, it's eaten by worms, um, goes the way of all the earth, as David said. The soul uh, is then assessed in some way by God. It's somewhat mysterious to me. I don't know that that's the full judgment. I don't think it is. But in some way, you know, it says in Scripture, the Lord knows those who are His. And so those that are believers then go into the presence of the Lord. And so there are a number of verses that teach this. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, 8 teaches that. So also Jesus' statement to the thief at the, on the cross at the right hand. He said, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Um, so those are some of those statements that we made and uh, other things that were in the handout uh, last time you can look at. Now I want to talk about what happens to unbelievers when they die. Um, and uh, probably the key passage in this is Luke 16, 19 through 31. I'd like to just read that and just make some comments on it. Uh, this is what it says. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores. And longing to eat which, uh, what fell from the rich man's table, uh, even the dogs came and licked his sores. And the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called, him, uh, called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed uh, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, even, sorry, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. So this is a, a very a powerful passage, uh, very sobering, uh, about a rich man who's unnamed in this uh, story, but who dies and goes to torment. And so uh, from this we learn a few things. First of all, for the unbeliever, the soul is separated from the body just like the believer. The body decays just like in the case of the believer. Uh, the soul is assessed or judged in some way uh, just like the believer. But unlike the believer, in which it was said, today you'll be with me in paradise, uh, this soul is consigned to torment. You notice that he's in agony. Uh, there's a statement here, he's in agony. And he's longing to be relieved from his agony. 
he's willing to have uh, someone dip uh, a finger and put it on his tongue because he longs for just some kind of temporary relief. And I think it is good for us uh, to meditate much on the sufferings connected with hell. Uh, it may seem like this uh, would be a, a very morose or depressing topic, but it is a biblical theme and it is valuable for us to meditate on it and to consider it. Uh, Jesus talked a lot about hell. He talked a lot about the suffering of hell. And it's really sobering, especially for me, to consider this fact. There is no earthly situation. There is no earthly condition, no matter how wretched, that people who are suffering in hell would not gladly embrace instead of being in hell. Meditate on that. I mean, you could be suffering from AIDS in the final throes of that disease in some kind of ward, barely able to catch your breath because of the pneumonia fluid that's filling your lungs, you would take that over hell if you could. If you were in hell, you would take coming back to that. You'd rather be in a Nazi concentration camp uh, than uh, to be in hell. I was thinking of that as I went through the, uh, the Holocaust exhibit in Washington, D.C., and I saw a very sobering diorama of people, Jews, uh, waiting to go into the uh, shower uh, areas where they were going to be gassed. And uh, I remember thinking um, that there would be some who were unbelievers, don't know how many, but that would go from the concentration camp to hell. Uh, that is a very uh, sobering topic, but we don't think that just because someone died in a Nazi concentration camp, they would, for that reason, go straight to heaven. And so I w was then thinking, just like from this, this story, how many would uh, gladly have had the reverse trip if they could. In other words, once they died uh, and then were in torment, would love to have been back even in Auschwitz or Bergen-Belsen or any of those places. It's a very sobering topic. And therefore, we should, in the end, as believers, be incredibly grateful to God, having been saved by grace, deserving the exact same fate of any who goes to hell. We're justified by faith. There's no boasting possible. Where then is boasting? It's excluded. Romans 3, where it's, it's removed forever. Uh, faith is specially designed so that we cannot boast. There's no arrogance connected with faith at all. We are saved in a way that humbles us. So it's a good topic for us, but there it is. Uh, what, what that means is that people who die, some of them go to uh, eternal bliss and some of them go to eternal torment. Um, the soul is awaiting final judgment at the resurrection. The soul is aware also and regretful and in some kind of mental anguish. Can you get that out of uh, Luke 16? Do you see this? He's regretting it. He's, he's wishing, I think, that he could have a different situation. He's also thinking about his uh, brothers, who are no better than him, apparently, concerned all of a sudden about evangelism, you know, <laughs> worried about them. And he wants to send a missionary to them. He wants to send a heavenly missionary. He wants to send Lazarus. Um, it's not stated here that Lazarus can't go to earth, but it's implied that it's just not necessary. It's not necessary. They have Moses and the prophets, the people on earth. And in Abraham's way of thinking, that's sufficient. Notice, and I've, I've heard a sermon on this and very poignant too, this cry from hell, no, Father Abraham, he says. Do you notice that? That's really the key issue, isn't it? How consistent then is this one in hell? He has the same attitude toward the written word that he's always had. It's insufficient. It's not worth talking about. Moses and the prophets is not enough. In Abraham's mind, however, it is Moses and the prophets are definitely enough. So the attitude of uh, those in hell is somewhat confirmed. They're not, they're not thinking differently. They still have a disrespect, at least in this case, for the word of God. 
And so he uh, is, is in regret. There's memories. I do not believe that amnesia takes over us when we die, whether we go to heaven or hell. I think we remember the things of life. And I think that's something that's good for us to think about too. So the soul is aware, regretful, and some kind of mental anguish. And there is no escape. There's no way to get out. There's a number of, of issues in here that I'm not going to take the time to exegete, but clearly there can be no transportation to or from. Uh, he is there and he cannot get out. There's no escape. That's part of what makes it so horrible. There is no way to get out. And we'll talk more about some of the faulty views in intermediate state, such as purgatory and annihilation. Um, we'll get to that in a moment, but there, there, there is no escape. There's no way to get out and there's no one that can come help. Nothing like that at all. Um, now, I'm not going to go into a full discussion of hell right now. I'm talking about the intermediate state. The reason we know that this is relevant to the intermediate state is that the brothers are still alive on earth. So history is going on. Uh, it's a continued story there. And so this is not the final judgment in the eternal state, heaven and hell or anything like that. So these things uh, we can take. Um, however, this soul is waiting the resurrection at this point. There will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. And that hasn't happened yet. And so, therefore, in Acts 24:15, the Apostle Paul says that this, there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. And we'll talk about that in due time in this summer course on, on the resurrection of both. Um, but that hasn't happened yet. John 5, 28 and 29, it says, Do not be amazed at this, for time is coming, when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Again, Revelation 20, <clears throat> 13 through 15. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Uh, the lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Um, there's, again, no escape possible uh, from that. So these are all things that we've taught. I believe, and we'll talk about this again in due, in due time, that there's some escalation of suffering once the resurrection of the wicked occurs. That when they receive whatever it is they receive, I don't know that we call it a resurrection body because we use the word resurrection in relation to, um, you know, 1 Corinthians 15 and the gift of being conformed to Christ's body. But they will receive something which will, I believe, increase their suffering for eternity. So there is a resurrection uh, of the wicked. Um, any questions about what happens to the lost after death? It's a sobering thing. It's a sobering thing. It's something we should keep in mind if you're going to visit, let's say, a lost person who's seriously ill. Uh, keep these things in mind and, and, uh, and witness to them with great boldness. Now, let's talk about some false teaching about the intermediate state, and let's start with the doctrine of purgatory. What is purgatory? Well, purgatory is a place of punishment in the intermediate state in which those who die as baptized believers at peace with the church must undergo penal and purifying suffering for a, a period of time to prepare them for ultimate acceptance into heaven. So it's related to a purging process. You're being purged for the sins that were not in some way dealt with pro uh, properly through the ministrations of the church. Let's not go much further into this before saying we're talking about the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, so basically uh, the concept here is that there are different categories of sin. Uh, there are mortal sins and there are venial sins in their structure and their way of understanding. A mortal sin is something that sends you to hell. And there's nothing that can be done. That, that is a sin leading to death. That's the way they interpret that in First John. And so it's a mortal sin. Um, and there's, uh, but um, if you haven't committed a mortal sin, and if you have been baptized as a Roman Catholic, as an infant, 
then you're not going to go to hell. Um, but you will go to purgatory unless you're a saint. A saint is identified, I believe, by the uh, College of Cardinals or by the church in some way. Uh, they're very rare. Um, uh, the Pope, I think, that recently died was made a saint, and so he apparently was identified as one wouldn't, ha- wouldn't have to spend any time in purgatory. So it's something that the church recognizes, something that the church knows, um, and these are famous people, saint this, saint that, saint the other, and there's certain requirements for being a saint. Everybody else goes to purgatory, all the other Catholics, those that have been baptized in the Catholic faith, but that haven't committed mortal sins. And they have to be, in some sense, purged from those sins that haven't been properly dealt with through the sacramental system of the Catholic Church. Unconfessed sin, for example. That's why it's beneficial to go to confession as much as possible in the Catholic system so that you have as few unconfessed sins as possible. What that led uh, Martin Luther to is basically to spend most of his waking day in the confessional. All right, he's just confessing and confessing and confessing because he doesn't want to spend much time in purgatory because between you and me, purgatory looks a lot like hell. All right, it just isn't permanent, that's all. It's a, it's a great deal of suffering. And, and Luther was extremely afraid of purgatory. He was afraid of being there because it, it, there's, no, there's nothing in Scripture about it except Second Maccabees, we'll get to that in a moment. But um, therefore, we don't really know how long it is. It could be tens of thousands of years. And I'm thinking 10,000 years in purgatory is an awfully long time. Uh, certainly feels like forever. Um, and so that's the whole, the whole doctrine. Roman Catholic and Orthodox churches teach this. Protestants generally reject it. There is no scriptural evidence for this in canonical scripture. However, Roman Catholic evidence is taken from the Apocrypha in 2 Maccabees 12. Now, I'm not going to read this, uh, but it, it, it teaches in this the possibility of praying for the dead, of, of ministering in some way uh, to the dead, uh, the very last verse there, verse uh, 46, it says, It is therefore um, a holy and wholesome thought to pray for the dead so that they may be loosed from sins. That's in Second Maccabees. We, however, have rejected as Protestants, we reject that as canonical scripture. Uh, we don't accept it. We, the Jews, did not accept it as, as scripture. Uh, but the Roman Catholic Church did. And I think it's one of those you know, chicken-and-the-egg situations. They found this here, and it was attractive to them to call it uh, Scripture. It was helpful to support the doctrine of purgatory. Now, this doctrine, I believe, greatly impugns the work of Christ on the cross. Do you see this? I mean, we've been teaching on Sunday evenings on Galatians. Just to add the requirement of circumcision, the Apostle Paul said it's not a gospel anymore. It's no gospel. And anyone who teaches that, let him be eternally condemned. Just to add circumcision now. But the Roman Catholic Church adds far more than circumcision, adds all kinds of requirements and other things. For example, water baptism. Uh, if you are not baptized, you will go to hell. Uh, there are you know, unbaptized uh, people. I'm not talking about uh, the, those that die in inf- or infancy that were never baptized. They, uh, there's a theory of basically limbo is what they call it, the limbo of infants. And they go kind of on the fringe or hem, it's in your notes there, but uh, they don't go to heaven, they don't go to hell, they don't go to purgatory, they go to limbo. But not every Catholic believes that. Uh, However, uh, this doctrine of purgatory says that Christ's death on the cross is not enough for you. And frankly, your suffering, temporary suffering, temporal suffering in purgatory is of equal value in the purging of your sins. We sing the hymn, What Can Wash Away My Sins?, And what's the answer? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. But purgatory gives a different answer to that. Do you not see it? What can wash away those sins that haven't been dealt with by the sacramental system? Uh, A period of time in purgatory. 
Furthermore, there is still this idea of the treasury of merits and various things that the church can give to help people who are in purgatory. And so therefore, you know, you are still under some kind of burden of obligation for your parents, your grandparents, great-grandparents, how far back do you want to go, um, to get them out of purgatory. And so good deeds you do can actually uh, free them from suffering. And that's the very thing that uh, puts uh, people under tremendous bondage. That's what the book of Galatians is all about. It's just a system of bondage and fear. All right, limbo is another doctrine. I just talked about that from the Germanic word for hem or fringe. Uh, there are two types. So in the Roman Catholic doctrine, limbus patrum, which is Old Testament uh, saints who had to wait for Christ's atoning work, and the limbus and phantom where unbaptized infants must spend eternity, whether uh, neither, sorry, neither in heaven nor hell. Augustine believed that since all humanity was polluted by Adam's sin, and that since only baptism in the name of Christ could remove that sin, unbaptized infants must be damned. Medieval theologians, uh, Peter Lombard and Thomas Aquinas, considered Augustine's view too harsh and concocted a compromise, neither heaven nor hell. There is absolutely no biblical evidence, not even the Apocrypha for this. None. And I'm just thinking, I mean, if there's no biblical evidence for something connected with the intermediate state, we ought not to think it. That's all. Nothing. And so, therefore, it should be rejected entirely by Christians. Then there's the concept of soul sleep. Uh, what does that mean? Well, death is frequently spoken of as sleep in the New Testament. We'll talk about 1 Thessalonians 4 later on uh, today. But 1 Thessalonians 4.15 says, According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left to the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. So death is likened to fallen asleep. Uh, Jesus spoke this way of Lazarus. You remember he said Lazarus has fallen asleep. And remember they misunderstood. Say, well, if you fall asleep, you'll get better and all that. And he said, well, I have to tell you plainly, Lazarus is dead. You don't seem to understand what I'm saying. Or that little girl that he raises, Jairus' daughter, he says she is not dead, only sleeping. And he raises her up, uh, etc. So there is that. But this is not what we're talking about. Not at all. This is talking about soul sleep. Not body sleep. This is talking about the soul, in some sense, being asleep. Um, the basic idea, then, is that the soul somehow cannot remain conscious separate from the body. It needs the body in order to be conscious, to have a conscious existence. And so, therefore, the soul loses all consciousness until the resurrection. The soul, in some sense, needs the body. The idea, uh, and, and those that would espouse soul sleep, say that those who, who uh, believe that the soul has a separate existence from the body are getting this from Greek philosophy. The, the immortality of the soul being a Greek philosophical idea coming from Plato or something like that. And that if, if you uh, believe this, you're really buying into Greek philosophy. You need to stick with the scripture. Well, John Calvin's first theological writing, Psychopanicia, in that he was talking about the soul sleep and rejected it. And he zeroed in very much on this, uh, on this scripture, 2 Corinthians 5.8. We are confident, I say, and would, are willing rather to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. He asked a question, Calvin did. He said, what is it that when absent from the body is present with the Lord, if not the soul? <laughs> what could it be? It must be the soul that is absent from the body and present uh, with the Lord, and therefore that is it. That's the very thing that, that Paul says, it's better for me to depart and be with Christ. Depart what? Well, at least this world. But we know he's leaving something else behind, isn't he? He's leaving his body. And so he's going to be loosed from the tent of this body. He speaks in that kind of language. Peter does as well. Freed from the body, he's going to be in the presence of the Lord. 
So the doctrine of soul sleep is to be rejected. Now, the way it works is you die and are immediately conscious of final judgment. And everybody is. That's the way it works. And so there really isn't an intermediate state at all. Nothing. Everybody dies and it's just for everybody immediately judgment day. Now, it could be 2,000 years later. But what do you know? It's somewhat like you've been, your soul is in a cryo state and just all lots of time has passed by. But everybody gets judged then at the same instant. That's how it works. Well, that's neat, but it isn't taught anywhere in scripture. It's actually rejected by these passages that we've looked at. So we must reject the doctrine of soul sleep as well. The soul will be separated from the body and conscious of its destination of heaven or hell. Uh, we, uh, and therefore, suicide is no escape for an unbeliever. Not at all. You know? And you hear people, at least he's free from his pain. He's free from his pain if. If what? If he's a believer in Christ. If not, he would wish he could be back in his pain. Not speaking lightly at all. So we ought to be careful what we say and make sure that it's true scripturally. Now, I also believe it's, it's impossible for us and not our place to make any final judgments about the destinations of souls. That's something that belongs only to Jesus. It's his right because he is the son of man. Read about it in John 5. That's his privilege. So I do not at funerals make any kind of final pronouncements, especially about those that may be lost. I just don't think it's my place. I always hold out hope that perhaps at the very last moment they might have repented and believed in Christ. And uh, I think it's, it's important to do that. I don't uh, behave the same way with somebody who lived in invisible communion with Christ, openly loving him and serving him. I think it's right for us to talk about that and and speak of their happiness in Christ. Okay, Uh, intercession to and for the dead. Friends, completely unnecessary. Yes, Second Maccabees, as I've said, teaches it. The idea uh, prayer for the saints uh, is unnecessary because they are where they're going to be. And there's nothing you can do about it. And frankly, there's nothing you should do about it. Now, I know there's a mysterious passage that talks about this doctrine of baptism for the dead that the Mormons picked up on. I didn't mention it here in your outline. But everybody acknowledges, uh, all Protestants uh, and Bible-believing Christians acknowledge it to be a difficult verse. We have no idea really what Paul's talking about there. I don't know what he's talking about. But there's no supporting theology that talks about doing anything whatsoever for the dead. When they die, they go to heaven or hell, and there's nothing can be done for them. So we ought not to be praying for dead people. I haven't heard any of you struggling with that, so I'm not going to spend much more time on it. It is an issue, of course, in Catholicism, however, people praying for ancestors. Prayer to the dead uh, is a different matter. That would be prayer to the saints, and you're asking the saints to pray for you. That's how it goes. Don't we ask each other to pray? Don't you go to brothers and sisters and say, pray for me, I'm going to be going through this and that? Yes, but it's a bit different when you can't see the brother or sister. You know, I think that's a pretty significant distinction, don't you? All right? So, uh, for me, if I'm going to pray to an invisible being, I think we should just go right to the Father through the blood of Jesus by the power of the Spirit. What do you say? I don't think there's any need to be praying to an invisible person who might intercede on our behalf. All right? Uh, I think there is evidence in the book of Revelation that the prayers of the saints are ascending as incense, and they may be in the process of praying now, etc. But I have no example whatsoever in Scripture of us praying to saints that they would pray for us. Yes? Yeah. 
Well, I'll tell you what. I was watching the NBA championship last night, and I heard about Red Auerbach about 14 times and how he was watching down on the Celtics and smoking a cigar in heaven. I thought I was going to throw up. Um, you know, so I don't, I don't know what to say about what Red Auerbach is doing right now. I have no idea about how he related to Christ. Uh, concerning people that talk a lot about being reunited with grandma and all that, um, if grandma is a believer and the person who's speaking is a believer, it's, it's a, a valuable sub-blessing. But the greatest blessing is seeing Christ and being with Christ, being in the presence. They will see his face and they will serve him and his name will be on their foreheads. And uh, that's, that's the beauty, is the fellowship with Christ. But we do believe that we will have fellowship with a countless multitude from every tribe and language and people and nation, including grandma. Um, you know, if she's a believer. And so I don't think there's anything wrong with that just as long as it doesn't take a central place, you know, and say, what I'm really looking forward to is if what you put in in that blank is anything other than God, Christ, you know, et cetera, then you haven't really understood the true joy of heaven. The true joy of heaven is being with God. And what, after all, was it you really loved about Grandma? Wasn't it Christ in her, what Christ was doing in and through her toward you? He's the source of everything you ever loved in her. I'm not saying that, that she's not unique and, and a beautiful, special reflection of God's glory. That's true. But it's still God's glory. And so, in the end, that's the reward. Uh, Genesis 15, do not be afraid. Abram, I am your very great reward. So, that's the great joy. Any other questions about these things up to this point? Yeah, Susan. I'm really asking how, you, how one reads and interprets parables, Christ's parables. Right. So, imagine that the Luke 16 one. Right. Mm-hmm. I've heard, I've heard a, a man who was influential in instilling beliefs in me right. that, uh, oh, you really mustn't read parables to and try to uh, attach something to each detail of it. Uh-huh. And uh, oh, like the, the tree or the, the branches don't necessarily mean anything. Right. Jesus is trying to make a general point. So, well, what would his general point in Luke 16 okay, be? But I'm, <laughs> if they cannot listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone uh-huh. rises from yeah, but even so, yeah. It's by the word of God right. that you will be convicted and brought to righteousness and by nothing else. You know, uh-huh. something like that. So, and, and to what end, though? To what end? Salvation from what? From the hell that's described there. Maybe soul sleep. I don't know. Yeah, no, but see, here's the thing. There is clearly a torment there in hell where he was in torment. And so I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that when the dead who die apart from Christ, die. They go into torment. I don't think we're pushing a detail. And frankly, I'm not entirely sure that this is a parable. I mean, that's always the question. You know, sheep and the goats is not a parable. It's a simile saying he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep. That's not a parable. So I don't know if this is a parable. But even if it were, there are still details that we can embrace. It's a good question. Yes, Stephen? Uh, just a couple comments on the Luke 16. Most parables are introduced with a statement indicating it's a parable. There is no, none in Luke, and there are no other parables where anyone is named. That's a good point. Lazarus is named. Yeah. Give it a little more weight. And people who try to say, well, this is a parable, are trying to say in such a way that you shouldn't draw certain teaching from it. But we don't have evidence that it is a parable. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm saying if, if based on that hermeneutical approach to parables, we no longer fear hell, I think that's not a good outcome uh, of hermeneutics. My feeling is we should still be very concerned about hell. Jesus said it's better for you to go into, into life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown in the fire of hell. So that's, there's no parable there. He's saying there's a fire that's known as hell. And so these are all, you know, these are, are valid issues. And I, I think I'm agreeing with what Steve, Stephen said is that I just take it as a, as a description of, of life. Yes, after death. Once you 
through that issue. I was wondering what you make of Saul's interaction with Samuel through the witch of Endor in uh, Samuel. Very difficult encounter there. I don't know what it was. I don't know what it was that uh, that Saul saw. Uh, in the text, it says it's Samuel. And remember, I just said you know a few minutes ago, I didn't say that Lazarus couldn't come back. I mean, God, God can do anything. I mean, He could send Lazarus back if He wanted to. I mean, I think it was Moses and Elijah there meeting with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. So, you know, I, maybe it was, in fact, Samuel. I, I don't know. And, and special case. We should not expect those kinds of things. That's looking for all the world like a seance to me. Um, but certainly, you know, he was uh, warned. Saul was warned about what was going to happen the next day. Let's talk about a couple of other faulty views about the intermediate state. One is the so-called second chance to hear the gospel or, the, or first chance for those who have never heard, that kind of thing. Have you heard about this? What about those who have never heard? Maybe after they die, they'll, they'll what? I mean, I want to know what. What are they going to do? Uh, you know, and, and it's, it's amazing because what's happening there, the, the whole issue... Uh, let me just describe. The idea is those who have never heard after they die will have in some sense a presentation of the gospel and have an opportunity to repent and believe in Jesus. Well, first of all, what scripture are you, are you, I mean, what, where does this even come? That's the whole thing. A lot of these intermediate state type theories are coming from just like Imbus and Phantom, what we think is right. We think Augustine's being too harsh, so let's come up with something. Well, that's not a good procedure. Well, what scripture, what text to the law and to the testimony, Isaiah 8, what is, what's teaching this? So on that alone, we can just move on to the next topic. There is no scripture. But I want to know why it is. You know why it is? It's because people think that everyone is owed a hearing of the gospel if anyone gets a hearing of the gospel. Now, where did that come from? In other words, if person A gets a full hearing of the gospel, it's unfair if person B on the other side of the world dies without ever having heard of Jesus, without ever having had that. It's unfair. So it is. Well, there's all kinds of strange ideas out there. One of them is that no one goes to hell for any reason except this, rejecting Christ. That's the only reason. But that's simply untrue. That's just unbiblical. Why do people go to hell? What does the Bible teach you? Why do they go to hell? For sins. They've committed sins. Have people who have never heard of Jesus committed any sins? Yeah, lots of them. All right, Romans 2 covers this. They're sinning against their conscience. They're sinning against the law written in their hearts, against nature. They know when they murder. They know it's wrong. They know these things. They know that they deserve death. They know it. That's what Romans 2 tells us. So bottom line is, they don't deserve anything good. Neither do we. So you ought to be kind of, as a Christian, a little bit allergic to the word deserve. Okay? Theologically, deserve isn't much of a friend of ours. Okay? What do we deserve? What is just and right for us to get? Well, apart from Christ, it's hell. Now, I believe, having stepped into the covenant through faith in Christ, it is righteous for us to be forgiven. He said he would. He's going to keep his promise. So he is faithful and just to forgive. So I believe that. But what I'm saying is God doesn't owe anybody anything. And he doesn't owe those who've never heard the gospel a hearing. But let's push it a next step. Let's say he did feel that was unfair and everybody should get an equal opportunity here. Well, then I feel greatly disadvantaged. You know who shared the gospel with me? It was Steve at MIT. Well, what about these people? They're in some kind of heavenly antechamber with heaven and hell spread out in front of them. And they get what? An angel coming in and saying, you know, there's heaven and there's hell. What are you going to do? That's not fair. They got a better presentation of the gospel than I ever got here on earth. So it just doesn't work. I mean, even the issue of fairness, it doesn't work. They get something we never got. We have to have faith 
that the beautiful feet messengers that he sends in Romans 10 are bringing good news and we have to see the good news of that and believe it. That's what has to happen. And by the way, God is fully able to send messengers anywhere he wants all over the world. Alan? Oh. Yeah, I don't, I don't really know what to say about, about that. I mean, you heard what Augustine thought. He thought that they're all lost because of the sin of, of Adam. I've had others say that they're all saved because what God, God, based on the logic of Romans 5, he, he ascribes to them something that they had nothing to do with, and in the same way he ascribes the blood of the second Adam to them. I don't know. All I know is this. The question is motivated out of a sense of, of, of justice and fair play. And all I can do is say this. Our sense of justice is as a candle compared to the raging sun of God's sense of justice. Our sense of compassion is as nothing compared to God's. So I can only answer, trust the character of God on that question and leave it at that. That's all I can say. I don't want to go beyond the scripture. There are some indications, like David said, about the infant that died. Uh, I will go to him, but he won't come to me. But then, in, in terms of Saul and, and uh, witch at Endor... Remember what Samuel said? Tomorrow you'll be here with me. You'll, you'll be with me. What is that, in heaven or is that in death? So it's just hard to know. My, my feeling is if you go with David's statement, I will go to him, but he will not come to me, and say, well, then he's in heaven, and so that's, then you're probably going to have to go with uh, Saul also being in heaven, which is fine with me if Saul's in heaven. That's still, I'm more there the better. But all I'm saying is hermeneutically there's a connection. All I can say is I don't know. I trust the character of God. Yes? I think they're getting the uh, second chance in hell from First Peter 3.19. Yeah. Um, when it preached to the spirits in prison, etc. Yeah. It's an odd passage. Yeah, I, I, yeah there's, there are other ways to interpret that, though. And I, I'm not going to go there right now, but that I, that's where they get the descent to hell as well. Um, okay. And then finally, annihilationism. The idea is that people who die outside of faith in Christ, are um, they cease to exist. Uh, there are different versions of annihilationism. Some is that they instantly cease to exist. Some is that they uh, suffer for a short time and then cease to exist. Uh, there are different versions of this. Uh, John Stott sadly teaches annihilationism. It's just a flaw in his doctrine. Um, and uh, many have tried to uh, re- you know, work with him on this, etc. I just don't think it's taught. Uh, it says, uh, then the righteous will go away into eternal uh, life, but the wicked into eternal punishment, eternal fire. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It's not a temporary place, it's an eternal place. So annihilationism is a false doctrine. These are various false understandings of the intermediate state. One thing you asked, actually, Zaneda, about people wa- looking down on us, uh, like I mentioned Red Hour back and all that. Um, I do believe that departed saints, believers in Christ, are conscious of current events. I think they are. I think there's indications in the book of Revelation that they know what's going on on earth. So some people talk about that as being the surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. All right? So that's intermediate state. Um, probing into the murky corners of doctrine and doing the best we can. That's about what, what it's like on intermediate state. Now let's talk about um, two other topics and get as far as we can. And that is uh, the rise and fall of the world from Daniel chapter 2. And uh, I don't know if we'll get to the rapture. I hope so. Uh, talk about the rapture. Uh, the rise and fall of the world. Um, and basically, I want you to notice I'm going in kind of chronological order. We've been talking about various things that God's going to do from here on out for the individual. And uh, we also are talking about um, 
you know, what's going to happen in world history. So there's micro-eschatology or individual eschatology, and then there's macro or world eschatology. Now what I want to do is take a step back and look at what's going to happen in the world between now and then. Okay, And uh, we already talked about this briefly in Matthew 24, the little apocalypse, uh, the Olivet Discourse. Um, Jesus said, nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. That's basically what Daniel 2 is teaching. And in the backdrop of that, the gospel, Matthew 24, 14, is being preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. However, there are certain details. Um, interpreters have zeroed in specifically on the toes, the ten toes of Daniel 2, um, and uh, say that there is a link there uh, to eschatology, and that's what I want to talk about here. So let's try to understand, first of all, the issue of the rise and fall of the world in prophetic perspective. Uh, when I was listening to tapes uh, by John MacArthur on Daniel 2 by that exact title, The Rise and Fall of the World, he quoted um, an 18th century British historian named Alexander Fraser T- uh, Titler, I think, um, whom he called actually Alexander Tyler, This is what uh, MacArthur quotes and says. The average age, says Tyler, this is quoting uh, MacArthur, of the world's greatest civilizations has been 200 years. And then he goes on this and says this. These nations have progressed through the following sequence. From bondage to spiritual faith, from spiritual faith to great courage, from courage to liberty, from liberty to abundance, from abundance to selfishness, from selfishness to complacency, from complacency to apathy, from apathy to dependency, and from dependency back into bondage again. So you can see kind of a bell curve shape where you're going up, you reach a pinnacle, and then you start sliding back down again. And what's happened is uh, basically the, the, the point that this historian and others have made is that that's the history of the world. Now, you can put Egypt on that, you can put Assyria on that, Babylon, you can put all of these empires, Spain, France, you know, all of them, right on through. You can put the United States of America on that if you'd like. Where do you think we are on that continuum? Are we we past, you know, I don't know, between abundance and selfishness or from selfishness to complacency or I don't know, but you can see that the trend, it just keeps on going. All right. By the way, there's some more things about that quote you can read in my outline, whether it's accurate or not. It doesn't matter to me whether it's accurate or not. What matters is that I think it accurately de- describes what really does happen in history. That I will say. Okay? So it, it really does. The Bible records the rise and fall of nations very plainly, and it says that the Sovereign Lord rules over all of that history. Uh, Psalm 75, 1 through 8, it says, We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks, for your name is near. Men tell of your wonderful deeds. You say, I choose the appointed time. It is I who judge uprightly. When the earth and all its people quake, it is I who hold its pillars firm. Silah. To the arrogant, I say, boast no more. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horns. Do not lift your horns against heaven. Do not speak with outstretched neck. No one from the east or the west or from the desert can exalt a man, but it is God who judges. He brings one down. He exalts another. In the hand of the Lord uh, is a cup of, uh, full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. What do I get out of that? God controls the rise and fall of nations. That's what Psalm 75 is saying. God is in charge. He makes the earth shake and he holds pillars firm. He does all of those things. He knows what he's doing. And he specifically brings judgment on people. He gives them a cup of wine, uh, judgment, and he makes them drink it down to its dregs. Now, no book of the Bible, I believe, reveals this more plainly 
than the book of Daniel. Daniel clearly teaches the sovereignty of God over the rise and fall of nations. It is a very comforting doctrine for us uh, as we look at um, current events. Uh, for example, in Daniel 4, 29 through 32, um, this is at the end of, uh, after Nebuchadnezzar, king of uh, the Babylonian Empire, had a dream in which a, a, a tree was cut down and um, the stump was bound with, with, with a gate of iron, with a fence of iron, and then he wanted to know what the dream meant. And Daniel comes in and interprets the dream, and he says, You, O king, are the tree. And this is what is decreed against you, O king. You will be driven away from people and your mind will be changed into that of an animal. And for seven years, you're going to live like an animal until you learn the lesson. Now, what is the lesson? Well, it says right here, all right? After Daniel had told this, he, he urged the king to repent of his wickedness and to be kind to the oppressed. Uh, but this is what actually ends up happening in Babylon. I mean, to uh, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Twelve months later, as the king, Nebuchadnezzar, was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is is not this the great Babylon I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and you will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge... And here's the lesson, that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. That's the lesson he was supposed to learn, and he learned it. And uh, the book of Daniel teaches this in many, many different ways. Daniel 2 is one of the main ways, we'll get to that in a moment. But then, then, then there's Daniel 5, in which Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, is having this feast, and, and there's writing on the wall. And the writing, writing on the wall is basically, it's over. Your kingdom is, is finished. Um, and it says at the end of that chapter, that very night Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. That is a change of empires right there. Babylonian empire is over and the Medo-Persian empire has begun. So the book of Daniel stands right at the crossroads of history and pronounces God's sovereignty over all of it. All right. Now let's zero in on Daniel uh, chapter 2. I'll uh, give you the context. Daniel's, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2. Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylonians, conquers Jerusalem by the will of God. It's established right at, right at the beginning in Daniel uh, chapter 1. God gave uh, Jerusalem over into his hand. Judah was then taken into exile because of their sins. Daniel and his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, were also deported. In Daniel chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar desires to train young men for service in his empire. Daniel and his friends are among those to be trained. Daniel resolves not to defile himself with the king's food. God rewards Daniel with a special gift, and that is the ability to interpret dreams. Daniel and his friends then enter the king's service as counselors. Daniel chapter 2. <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that deeply troubles him. He is so eager to understand the meaning and significance of the dream that he says to his counselors that anyone who can tell him the dream and interpret it for him will be greatly rewarded. But if they cannot, they will be executed. The counselors obviously cannot do what the king asks. He's asking them to perform a miracle. Tell me what I dreamed, and then I'll know that you can interpret it for me. They cannot do it. And so he gives a decree that all the wise men of Babylon be executed. Daniel and his friends are included in this decree. Uh, they will be executed. Uh, they seek God's face in prayer for the revelation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And amazingly, God answers their prayer for the miracle and reveals the content of the dream and its meaning to Daniel. Then Daniel praises God, and look what he says. After he has understood what the dream is and what it means, he then says these words. This is so powerful. 
During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You've given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Look at verse 21 again. He changes times and seasons he sets up kings and deposes them do you see that that's what god does he rules all right so in daniel chapter 2 he then reveals the dream what is the dream well i can do no better than just read it i can't write my own summary better than just let's just have daniel 2 tell us what the dream was you looked O king and there before you stood a large statue an enormous dazzling statue awesome in appearance the head of the statue is made of pure gold its chest and arms of silver its belly and thighs of bronze its legs of iron, its feet partly iron, partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain that filled the whole earth. All right, so what do we have? We have a statue of a man. Uh, we know that because it's got head, chest and arms, belly, thighs legs, feet, okay? So it's a, it's a human human being. That's the statue of a man. The, there are various metals starting uh, at the top and going down. It goes from uh, what is most precious, gold, less precious, silver, then bronze, even less precious, then iron, and then the least precious of all, um, the, the admixture of clay and iron. All of it comes from the earth, though. It's all mined up out of the earth. Um, then there's this supernatural rock that's cut out. It smashes the statue completely. Pieces of the statue are swept away by the wind and no trace remains. Very significant statement. The rock then becomes a huge mountain that fills a whole earth. That's the dream. Now the next question is, what in the world does it mean? All right, well then Daniel goes on and interprets it. The interpretation is given in Daniel 2, 37 through 45. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and a mighty glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will rise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. And just as you saw that the feet and toes are partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of the iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes are partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. All right? So what's going on here? Well, this is a history of the world given ahead of time. That's what it is. It's a timeline. It's a timeline of the rise and fall of empires. After you, another kingdom will rise in fear of yours. Next, there will be a third kingdom, one of bronze. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. Kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. It's a series of kingdoms, or we could use the word empires, one after the other. 
They represent the flow of human history, one kingdom to the next. The head of gold represents not the Babylonian kingdom, but Nebuchadnezzar himself. There's a tremendous focus here on Nebuchadnezzar. He, not Babylon, but he is the head of gold. Focus on him, I think, is basically once he was dead, it was over. It just took uh, two generations and, and it, was, it was done. Belshazzar is completely unfit to rule. Uh, chest and arms of silver is the Medo-Persian Empire. It's in parentheses because it's not identified. We have to look to history to answer this. Okay, but uh, also the book of Daniel gives us more clues in chapter 8 and chapter 7 as well. Uh, but it's true, I think. True interpretation. Medo-Persian Empire. Belly and thighs of bronze represents then the Greek Empire. Uh, clearly named in Isaiah, uh, sorry, Daniel chapter 8. Um, Alexander the Great coming in and uh, setting up his empire uh, after the Persians fall or causing the Persians to fall. And then uh, the legs of iron uh, represent the Roman Empire. But then there are those feet. Partly iron, partly baked clay. What do they represent? That's the question in front of us. That's why we're looking at this tonight. All right? The rock that's cut out, but not of human hands, is the kingdom of Christ. It's a supernatural origin. That's what it means that it's a rock cut out, but not by human hands. It's cut out of a mountain. Notice that. You have to notice details. In verse 45, it's cut out of a mountain. And what does it become? Then the rock that struck the statue became a mountain. So it's cut out of a mountain and becomes what it was. It becomes a mountain. It's very significant to me because I believe that this is exactly what's happening with the kingdom of heaven. That basically, like we pray in the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What comes next? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So in other words, there's a union between earth and heaven. I think that's what's going on. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But it's cut out of a mountain and becomes a mountain. It destroys all the other kingdoms and brings them to an end. All vestiges of those forming kingdoms are swept away without leaving a trace. Why is that significant, by the way? I mean, think of all the work that goes into building an empire. Is this not the great Babylon I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? That's quite a sentence. I mean, that takes a big lung of air to say something like that. Well, it was worth it, though. Look at the glory and the grandeur of Babylon. Oh, look at the glory and grandeur of, you know, of Rome or Athens or all these great centers of empires, one after the other. Look at how glorious they were. Well, what is the significance of the fact that they're like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer and the wind sweeps them away without leaving a trace? What's going to be left of all that human endeavor and achievement? Nothing. I mean, nothing. It's going to be gone. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fueled for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? That's Habakkuk 2.13. Anyone know Habakkuk 2.14? Just read it over the map there. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fueled for the fire, the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. He's in competition with these empires. And they lose. <laughs> There's nothing left. Blown away without a trace. Now the kingdom is described directly in verse 44. A kingdom that God himself establishes and it will endure forever, it says. It will never be destroyed and it will not be left to another people. This is the final kingdom. Notice, however, it says, in the days of those kings, he will set up a kingdom that will not be destroyed. The question is, which kings? What is it referring to? Does it refer to all of the kings of the kingdoms that are mentioned? Head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, all of those kings? Or does it refer to other kings? What kings? The final kings? The kings of the, uh, of the uh, final phase of history? Is that what it's referring to? 
Um, note also, as I've mentioned, the increase of the size of the rock and how it fills the whole earth. I just quoted it. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In other words, Jesus keeps getting bigger and bigger. I get to preach on that this Sunday. Get ready for it. Okay? Isaiah 9-7. Of the increase of his kingdom, there will be no end. Jesus just keeps getting bigger and bigger. He's going to keep getting bigger and bigger in heaven too. I don't mean physically larger and larger. I don't mean that. That would be a bit odd. I mean getting bigger and bigger forever. But I mean his kingdom is going to get bigger and bigger. In what way? In the estimation that we have toward him and his greatness. We're going to keep thinking of him as greater and greater than we ever thought of him before. Can that really go on for eternity? Well, let's find out. I think it can. (laughs) I think he's going to keep becoming greater and greater in our estimation for all eternity. But that's on Sunday. We'll get to that. But uh, it's going to get bigger and it's going to fill the whole earth. Note also how it's cut out from a mountain becomes a mountain. I think it reminds me of the yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all, all through the dough. She breaks off a little piece of yeast from leavened dough, right? And she takes it and puts it in a place where it isn't. There's no yeast there. And what does it do, that little piece of leaven that's mixed in a... It, it permeates. And it says she hides it. She hides it in the, in the dough. That's literally in crypto. She encrypts it into the, into the flour. What does it do, that yeast, that little piece of leaven? It permeates, it multiplies, it spreads, it takes over. just takes over. Give it enough time, right temperature and all that, it just takes over. So it is with the kingdom of heaven. Now, that is a parable, all right? The kingdom of heaven is like. So it spreads and it just permeates until it works all through the dough. So also Jesus, his kingdom comes and permeates and spreads until it goes through all the dough. Now, what about the ten toes of the statue? First of all, we don't know for sure that there are ten, but we do know that there are toes. And uh, let's face it, most normal people have ten toes, okay? The number ten, if you do a word search, does not appear in Daniel chapter uh, two. It does appear, however, in Daniel chapter 7. We'll get to that in a moment. And toes, the word toes, does appear. So let's talk about the toes. All right. Notice, for example, how much attention is given to the feet. Oh, Bob Hatcher is here. Um, he spends his whole day giving attention to feet. I guess he's not here. But anyway, uh, you can talk to him about that. The, Daniel uh, uh, 2, 41 through 40, that's three full verses on the feet. All right. Just as you saw that the feet and toes are partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom, yet it will have some of the strength of the iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. And as the toes are partly iron, partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. That's a lot to say about those feet. There's a lot going on with the feet. From this, uh, by the way, comes the famous phrase, feet of clay. It has feet of clay. Uh, we use that similar to an Achilles heel. It's kind of a character flaw or something that could bring down a great lead or something perhaps hidden and it's not revealed until a certain point. It becomes what we call a fatal flaw. That's what feet of clay tends to mean. That's what we, well, it comes right here from Daniel 2. What is the fatal flaw of all human, human kingdoms? What is the feet of clay? What is it? It's right there on the page. What does it say, Jack? <laughs> Sin and death. That's it. Sin is a fatal flaw because it ruins the quality of the kingdom, right? Think about, you think about the, the final days of the Roman Empire, and you always have this picture of people just feasting, let us eat, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. You know, that kind of thing. The corruption, you know, the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, that kind of thing. But uh, bottom line is we are made of clay. 
Uh, Genesis 3.19, by the sweat of your brow you will eat of your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken. We are mined, we were excavated from the earth. And where are we heading? We're going back. For dust you are and to dust you will return. Okay, add a little moisture to dust and what do you have? Well, I guess you have clay. Um, that's what it is. We're just clay. And so Job 4, 18 and 19, if God placed no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more are those who live in houses of clay? What's that referring to? Our bodies, right? Poetical way of talking about our bodies. So therefore, houses of clay are mortal human bodies taken from the earth. Sin and death then brings all great empires to the ground because the great men who built the empire pass it on to sons who didn't. Do you hear what I'm saying? So Nebuchadnezzar is a great man. Belshazzar is not. <laughs> All right, this happens again and again in history. The great men, they have vision, they have intelligence, they don't care much about the trappings of power and all that. They want to achieve. They're, they're men of vision and energy and drive. They're not godly. I mean, they're ravenous beasts in, in Daniel 7, but they, they achieve great things. And after they achieve them, they create pockets of comfort for their children, their families, right? And their sons grow up in those pockets of comfort, somewhat coddled and soft. And what ends up happening is the empire gets unraveled in that very same way. Ecclesiastes 2 says this, uh, The wise man like the fool will not be long remembered. In days to come, both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man too must die. So I hated life, said Solomon, because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless at chasing after wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. Spoken like a father saying, my son is not worthy of my work. That's what he's saying. He's saying, so my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill. And then he must leave all that he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. So the feet of clay also seem to be somehow a continuation of the fourth kingdom, one of iron, since there is both iron and clay. Talk about that in a moment. But bottom line, every empire has a feet of clay. It's called human beings, sin, death. That's what brings it down. Once Nebuchadnezzar dies, it's over. There's no one who can replace him, and so Babylon falls. Now, premillennial interpretation of the feet of clay. The kingdom of God, uh, thought of here in Daniel 2, is established at the second coming of Christ. It's established as the millennial kingdom. That's the way that they see that. Okay? The key interpretive issue, then, is the link between the toes of the statue, the horns of the fourth beast in Daniel 7, and the ten kings in Revelation 17. All right, so there are the verses on page 6. After that, Daniel 7, 7, in my vision I, at night I looked, and there before me is a fourth beast, terrifying, frightening, very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. All right, what is the interpretation of the horns? Uh, Daniel 7, 24 through 26, the ten horns you saw are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. We'll come back to that, friends, I guarantee you. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. I believe that this is an antichrist figure and that uh, verses uh, from this can be applied directly to the antichrist himself. So this is a powerful being this is a powerful being who will set himself up against God, who will oppress the saints and persecute them, etc. So there is a link then made between the toes 
of the statue in Daniel 2 and the ten kings of uh, the fourth beast. Why is there a link? Because the legs of iron seem to give way to iron and clay, which is not so good as iron, but similar to iron. And so they argue that this is what you call the final state or final phase of the Roman Empire. And so they say the Roman Empire will will, uh, experience a kind of a revival at the end of time. And so frequently people are looking at the territory covered by the Roman Empire and seeing political events there, such as the coalescing of a common market, the EU, the European uh, Union, and uh, how many member nations there are, are there 10 leaders there, etc. And they're looking at this as a fulfillment of prophecy. And it doesn't trouble them if they're more or less or whatever. They just think when the time comes, that's what there will be. There will be a revival of the Roman Empire in the time of those kings, namely the ten kings who represent in some way the Roman Empire at the end. God will set up his kingdom through Jesus Christ. You get the same thing in Revelation 17. Uh, the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. It turns out the beast is the city of Babylon. It represents human empires, I believe. Some people think Revelation 17 represents a corrupt religious system, but religion really isn't focused on their worldly power and crushing power, etc., a city's power. It, I think it's an empire, but others disagree, and that's fine. Revelation 17, 12 through 14, the ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. They will make war against the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. This is the second coming of Christ. The beast is the Antichrist. The ten kings are ten political leaders who come together for the purpose of giving some kind of power and authority to the Antichrist. They link that then to the ten horns of the final beast. There's that fourth beast, Rome, or the revived Roman Empire, that come together and uh, give power to the Antichrist. It's the final version of human rebellion against Christ. And Jesus is going to come back and he's going to destroy them. Thus the ten toes of uh, Daniel chapter 2. All right, so we've covered that. The final form of the Roman Empire, final final form, is especially characterized by conglomeration, admixture, varying degrees of weakness and strength, caused by the fact that the people are unlike each other and really don't get along very well. All right, so it's not a very strong empire like the Roman Empire was. This is a mixture, and the people don't stick together. It's what it says. They don't stick together because they don't have enough to do with each other or something. And so it's not strong. It's brittle. It's got some strength and some weakness, etc., That's it, all right? That's the final version of human governance. Uh, This smashing, uh, Christ sets up his kingdom, millennial kingdom, and smashes the confederacy of ten kings who give their power to Antichrist. This smashing occurs at the second coming. 2 Thessalonians 2.8, Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow by the breath of his mouth and with the splendor of his coming. Revelation 19 describes that. Jesus comes back uh, on a white horse. The rider is called Faithful and True. This is Jesus. He makes war and he destroys the coalition of human forces that are together under the Antichrist, Revelation 19, and he destroys them. And he throws the beast into the lake of fire and he kills them all with a sword coming out of his mouth. That's the second coming. All right. Well, what is my take on all this? Well, I, I think you don't actually have to, have to choose in this regard. I think what I would rather do is say, let's look at the kingdom of Christ. Go back to what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. When did the kingdom of Christ start? When did Jesus establish his reign? I say he established it in his first coming. Has the rain been growing? Has the yeast been spreading through the whole lump of dough? Absolutely. Has it been a hidden spreading? Yes, it has. 
The rock cut out, but not by human hands. It grows. It gets bigger. I make much of that. All right? I make much of that. Now, you say, well, it grows after the smashing. I don't make much of that. The consecutive order. First the smashing, then the growing. Okay? I think the smashing goes on all the time. I think he destroys one kingdom after another. I mean, how does a kingdom get destroyed? Seriously. How does the Spanish empire come to its end? Well, when it decides to get ambitious and send an armada up to, to invade uh, England, right? What happened to the armada in 1588? It got smashed. Did Jesus have anything to do with that? Well, what do you think? I mean, we started talking about the sovereignty of God over the rise and fall of nations. It's a trick question, friends. Did Jesus have anything to do with the smashing of the Spanish armada? He had everything to do with the smashing of the Spanish armada. He raises one and lowers another. It was the end of the Spanish empire. That's it. Did he have anything to do with the setting of the sun in the British empire? Absolutely. He raises one. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. Does Jesus smash empires? Has he been smashing them? Yes. Is he going to smash Antichrist's empire? Absolutely. In a very clear and obvious way. I don't think we have to choose. I think he's been smashing, 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 smashing and building his own kingdom all along. And therefore, I don't want to just say this must be the millennial reign. It will be. But it's going to be all of the above. As it was, so it will be. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be. So it will be, so it will be. It just keeps coming. He is sovereign. He rules the nations with a rod of iron coming out of his mouth. Read Psalm 2. What does Psalm 2 say? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. And then he terrifies them in his anger and, and destroys them in his wrath, saying, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you and you be destroyed in your way. What does that mean in Psalm 2 when it says, you better kiss the son, S-O-N. You better kiss the son or he's going to be angry with you and destroy you while you go about your business. And what is the business of a human empire? Ruling the earth. Does he have the power to destroy you while you go about your business? Oh, he, he's been doing it all along. And so therefore, I don't think it's right to take the vision of Daniel 2 and stick it just at the very end of time. I think he's been doing it all along and the, and the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and it's filling the whole earth. Now, it's a spiritual growth now. It will be a clear physical coming at the second coming of Christ. If others want to say this is only speaking, you know, when it says in the time of those kings, it's referring to the ten toes. I think that's a bit obtuse there in Daniel 2. You have to really work to say there are ten toes, there must be ten in the time of those kings. I say in the time of all of the kings, any of them that there have ever been, in the time of all of them, he sovereignly works to do what? Set up his kingdom. He rules over all of it. And to me, that's glorious, isn't it? To know that, that Jesus Christ is playing history like a, like a piano, like a, like a, uh, like a, a concert level pianist, better, um, just orchestrating history to establish his own kingdom. To me, that's glorious. And is he doing it now? Yes. And will he be doing it when the Antichrist comes? Yes. He's going to gather them all and he's going to destroy them with the glory of his coming. He's going to do all of that. Now, my strategy here was to so extend the teachings that we hadn't covered and so that I wouldn't have to teach on the rapture tonight and I'd have one more week 
And so it has been. Isn't that wonderful? So I have one more week to keep studying the rapture and learning more um, about that. But seriously, be reading. You have my outline. I guess I'm kind of stuck, so now you can read what I've written up to this point. Um, But the outline teaches uh, some of the things about the rapture. I'm going to keep learning and probably give you a different outline next time on the rapture. And we'll also get into talking about the tribulation next time as well, God willing. So let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the time we've had to study. Thank you for the glory, the depth, the riches of the Word of God. We thank you, O Lord, for the fact that history is right on schedule, that you know exactly what you're doing. We thank you for the fact that when those ten kings come together to give their power to the beast, the Antichrist, that you'll be ruling over all that as you've been ruling over every king that's ever lived. Lord Jesus, you said very plainly, my kingdom is not of this world. And so it is in Daniel 2. You are rock cut out, but not by human hands. You are glorious. You are mighty. You are the king of all kings. You are the Lord over all lords. You are the ruler of heaven and earth. You are orchestrating history for your own purposes. You are saving your people, calling them the elect chosen from every tribe and language and people and nation so that your people might love you and be with you and see your glory. Continue, O Lord, to do it and help us to love you for it and embrace it and to trust you as you do it. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.